There's a tension that some people feel when they read the Bible and they read statements like 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then in another place in the Bible, they read that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And they, they kind of struggle with that. I mean, we're not supposed to love the world, and here is God loving the world. You say, well, that's obvious, right? I mean, we are supposed to love the people of the world, but we are not supposed to love the things of the world. I mean, that's pretty clear and simple in most people's minds. You know, but increasingly, that simple understanding is being challenged. There's a collection of voices and movements of people who are saying that you can so dichotomize those things that in fact, in order to love the people of the world, that you and I have got to learn to love the things of the world. Now, we've got to learn to understand and embrace and love the culture and the, and the society and everything that's going on around us. In fact, they would cite statistics that show the shrinking size of our congregations and denominations and churches in America, the decline of biblical literacy, the uh, increasing average age and church populations indicating that younger generations aren't being captured by the church or aren't being brought in by the gospel, they would cite those things as evidence that we as a church are losing our connection and uh, losing our influence over the culture. And so, as one author puts it plainly, quote, if the church wants to be relevant, if it wants to succeed in its mission, it must give attention to contextualization, end quote. Or another writer says, Churches, quote, churches should focus on being missional, moving outward, and incarnational, moving deeper into the culture, end quote. Or again, quote, churches should help new believers remain within their tribes, whether the tribe is punk rock, ghetto block, yuppie stock, just so long as they don't sin, end quote. Or again, quote, we need to exegete the culture, we need to exegete the themes of the Rolling Stones, Dennis Rodman, Madonna, and David Letterman. We need to comprehend that the Spirit of the living God is at work in these cultural expressions, preparing the hearts of men and women to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. That's just representative of really a growing number of voices who tell us that the problem of declining churches and lost influence is a problem of not being engaged enough in the culture around us. Well, what if the problem isn't that? What if the problem isn't a failure to be in and to understand the culture? What if the problem is that when the world looks into the church, it sees a reflection of itself? That there is no distinction. What if the problem is that when the world looks into the church, it sees the same animosity and discord and gossip and slander and selfishness, not to mention greed and immorality? What if the problem is that when the church 
is put on display that the world sees no distinction, no difference whatsoever between itself and, and us. In fact, it would certainly seem to be the focus of Scripture that when it comes to influence in the, in the world, the mandate isn't to exegete the culture and it isn't to mirror the culture. It is to stand distinct from the culture. It is to be things like Jesus says, a city set on a hill, a light that shines in the midst of darkness. In other words, the element that we are given in order to influence the culture isn't our ability to exegete it. It is our ability to present a purity of our profession, a distinctiveness of our undefiled lives. In fact, uh, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Folks, that was written 125 years ago. But it could have very well been written last week, right? There's a sort of what I call a confusion of contextualization. The people think that somehow we need to do more to contextualize ourselves, put ourselves in the context of our culture. They don't realize that we're products of our culture. Uh, The Bible just assumes that. It just assumes that you will, uh, by and large, maybe dress in the same way, drive the same things, live the same places, eat the same food, all those things, and even use some of the same, some, some of the same language of the culture. The Bible sort of assumes that. Well, what can be assumed is that the world and its corrupting influence won't have its detrimental impact on you. In fact, Spurgeon goes on to say this. He said, Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history, and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ, the more potent is her witness against sin. Never truer words were spoken. The reason the churches are failing to impact the world isn't because they failed to study and understand the world, it's that they've understood it too much, that they've mirrored it too much, that they reflect the world, the culture, and its ways too much. Now, so many churches have failed to understand this, but... But we turn our focus this morning to one in particular whose confusion is recorded for us on the pages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, our passage we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. Paul is writing to a church that was completely taken in, has completely taken in a love for the world, while at the same time completely failing to love the world of sinners that's around it. And nothing could be more instructive for us today in the church but to examine what Paul has to say for this church, which we've been doing for the last two Sundays. And what Paul is basically doing is calling this church back to faithfulness in dealing decisively with sin in their own midst, dealing decisively with sin in their own congregation, while at the same time continuing to love sinners who are on the outside. 
basically spelling out for this church the processes and the purposes of what we formally call church discipline. That is the very mandate given in Scripture by the Lord Himself back in Matthew chapter 18 where He gives us instructions on how to deal with flagrant and unrepentant sin within the body of Christ. That passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, spells out this, this detailed process. It is the first command which the Lord gave to the corporate church. We're all familiar with the second one that comes 10 chapters later in Matthew 28 about going into all the world and, and uh, teaching them to, to command all, do that all He's commanded, to make disciples of all the nations. But we, we fail to realize or we bypass conveniently the first corporate command that the Lord gave to the church in Matthew 18, which is to deal decisively with sin in its own, in its own assembly. To guard the purity of the body of Christ by removing those whose way of life does not match their lips, who are living in open sin while still naming the name of Christ. This is what Paul's calling for in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The public removal of a man who was engaged in sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, he says in verse 1, of such a kind as wasn't even uh, accepted among the pagan society around them. And it was in this chapter then in verse 5 Paul calls for the removal of this man from the congregation using the dramatic language that they are to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh well today we're going to give our attention to the final part of this chapter but I want to begin just by reading it once again in its entirety to help us frame in our minds the context of all that Paul is saying here first Corinthians 5 verse 1 Paul says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That is to say, he was involved with his stepmom. And you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who's done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, my spirit present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, for since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We're looking here at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and taking note of five instructive elements 
of church discipline so that we can better understand our responsibility in it and God's design for it. We've already taken note in this passage, first of all, of the offense that discipline targets. It is those habitual, flagrant sins. It is those sins that after a private confrontation, private uh, admonition, people still hold on to after a confrontation with two or three others. They continue to dig in their heels and it becomes a pattern of life. It becomes a cherished sin in their life. This is what we're talking about when we talk about public sin, public discipline, excuse me. Now also, we also talked about in verses three and four, the authority that discipline claims when Paul mentions being gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus and having the power of the Lord Jesus. Those are phrases lifted right out of Jesus's own instruction in Matthew chapter 18, where he says, look, if two or three of you are gathered in my name, that is to say that you've done everything as I have commanded you here. And if you take decisive action, what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. That is to say, you have my authority. You do it in my power. That's what Paul's talking about in verses three and four the authority that discipline claims. We also talked about the purpose that discipline pursues. That is to say that this is not punitive. This is not somehow vindictive against this person. As a matter of fact, this is one desperate attempt to shake them to their senses, to help them to see what everyone around them sees, which is the self-deception that they have. Paul says it this way, you deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Folks, when we, when we deal decisively with someone like this in a public way, it is our interest to see them saved, to see them walking in obedience to the Lord, to see them standing eternally, eternally with the Savior. This is a redemptive purpose all the way from the very beginning, the first private admonition all the way through the very end. The desire is to see them reconciled to the Savior not self-deceived. And then fourthly, Paul had to address the purity that discipline preserves. Just saying to them, look, your boasting isn't good, verse 6. You you may think that you can carry on church and sort of tolerate this stuff, but you need to realize, as he goes on to say, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. That this, this is going to have a permeating influence not only in the entire congregation, but even in your life. You say, well, no, it's not. Paul calls that boasting. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Discipline was given to the church for the purpose of continually cleansing the people of God. You see, it's not just that final act that cleanses. It begins with that initial admonition that you give with someone because you have to, first of all, search your own heart. You have to, first of all, deal with logs in your own eye. And so there is a, there is a constant cleansing process that's taking place in all of our lives as we're given the responsibility of holding each other accountable. And then not only that, but God uses us in each other's lives as we're as we're uh, calling each other to faithfulness, God's using us to sharpen one another, to spur one another on, to love and good deeds, to cleanse our lives by things, maybe helping us see blind spots, call us back to accountability and faithfulness. So God's not only using the process in our own hearts, but He's using other people to cleanse our own lives. But even along with that, there is, there is the aspect of cleansing corporately the congregation Because once a church decides that it's not going to obey the Lord in this matter, 
it's only a matter of time until the moral fiber of that congregation is degraded and the church begins to be infected. That's what Paul's saying here. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. It may take time. It may not be an overnight process, but it will happen, he says. And so there's a purity principle that's involved with this. Well, today we come to the final, the final element that Paul's highlighting here, and that's the distinction that discipline makes. The distinction that discipline makes. Paul says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. You say, well, look, what letter? I mean, we have, this is 1 Corinthians, right? In this first letter he wrote to, to Corinth? Well, not exactly. This is the first one that we have in our canon of Scripture. But Paul apparently wrote several letters to the Corinthian church. In God's providence, some of them are preserved for us as, as inspired Scripture. Some of them were simply the correspondence of the Apostle Paul with various churches and weren't preserved for us. So Paul had apparently written a letter, at least one, if not more, to this church already. And he had written by way of instruction to them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Unfortunately, they had taken that one phrase and misinterpreted what Paul's intent was, as so many people do when they take one phrase aside from all the rest of the context of Scripture. Paul had written to them not to associate with immoral people, he says, but not, I did not intend for you to separate for the, from the immoral people of the world. Because of their misinterpretation, this church had actually distorted God's purpose for the church. They had obviously failed in the Lord's first command to deal with sin in their midst. But at the same time, they were failing the Lord's second command to take the gospel to all nations. I mean, they had completely turned on its head everything the Lord designed the church to be. A lighthouse of purity and truth to the world and a, and a place of of purity within its own midst to encourage and edify the body. Not only had they failed to mourn over sin, but they had isolated themselves disobediently from the world. So Paul confronts their folly by pointing out that their interpretation of his words were clearly against the command of Scripture, which calls on you and I to be salt and light. Look, whatever your understanding is of not loving the world, whatever your understanding is of guarding purity in your own life, if it leads you to the avoidance of sinners, it is a distorted understanding. It is a corrupt understanding. Because it's basic that you and I are to be engaged in reaching out to the unsaved. Jesus said it this way, Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
I mean, salt was, well, salt was a, a major uh, ingredient, a major element in the days of the Apostle Paul, the days of, of our Lord. It was abundant, of course, right there by the Dead Sea. The salt mines just produced so much salt, and people would use it like they've always used it. They would use it for something to flavor their food, but um, uh, maybe more importantly in those days, they would use it as a preservative agent when they didn't have a refrigeration And on top of that, they would even use it as a fertilizer in their fields or they would add it to manure in order to speed up the decomposition process. But sometimes when that salt was harvested, it was harvested with mixtures of of gypsum and other minerals there. And in some cases, it couldn't be separated. And whatever kind of saltiness was there might even escape through evaporation. And so what was left was useless filler. Stuff that was eventually just thrown out as not good for certainly seasoning food, not good for preserving anything, and not even good for fertilizer. Just throw it out to be trampled under the foot of men. Not to say that salt itself, sodium chloride, ever loses its properties, ever loses its taste. But there are some whose lives are so mixed with the corrupting elements of this world, the, the, the gypsum, if you will, of worldly thinking. Their lives are so mixed with, with the corrupting influence of this world that it becomes absolutely useless for any good purpose. This is what Jesus is talking about. You've you got to be a salt. And to be salt, you have to be pure. You've got to be distinct. You, you have to keep your saltiness in the sense of purity. We've all seen this, unfortunately, people who might make an initial step of, of involvement in the church, some initial profession of faith, and then, and then they begin to slow slide into corruption. And it happens maybe quietly behind the scenes, family members, friends, you see them lose their appetite for the Word of God, you see them lose their, their desire for growth, and then they begin to entertain more and more worldliness into their life and into their homes and then before long there is there is growing up underneath a religious facade a worldliness so that there's so much corrupting influence their lives are worth nothing in terms of of having the kind of impact and the kind of influence on the world that the lord designs a life that no longer glorifies god a life that's no longer dedicated to him Jesus goes on there in Matthew 5. He says, you're to be the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says this is what the church is supposed to be. You want to talk about influence in society, in the world, this is the recipe. And the recipe isn't some sort of a clever cultural engagement. The recipe, he says, is good works. That's how he defines this influence. That's how he defines this, this saltiness. This is how he defines this shining forth. It is, he says, good works works. Now, when he says that, he's not talking about some sort of generic community service. He's not talking about the Adopt-A-Mile program. 
and you picking up trash along the highway. He's talking very specifically. In fact, if you go through the rest of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he spells out exactly what he's talking about. A life of sincere, genuine righteousness. Folks, this is what the church is supposed to be. This is what Christianity is supposed to be. This is what should strike you when you come into a church. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, and you might have been in other churches before and you might have had that conclusion, look, these guys are just the same as me. They, they might have a facade, but they're just the same as me. That's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a light shining forth of a transformed life. People who from the inside out are new creations in Christ. That's the work of God. That's what impacts people. Everywhere in Scripture, Ephesians 5.8, you were formerly darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights. That's our mandate. Our mandate isn't to become clever contributors to culture. Our mandate is to be clear representations of the love and the purity of Christ. So Paul tells them, look, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to then go out of the world. That's virtually a quotation from the prayer that our Lord Jesus prayed for you if you're a believer. He prayed in John 17, 15, I do not ask you, Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. See, if you understand God's will, if you understand God's purpose, you understand that you are to shine as a light, and you understand that in order to shine as a light, you need to be somewhat in the midst of darkness. You need to be, as Philippians 2 says, in the midst of of a crooked and perverse generation among them that you might appear as a light. You have to have, in other words, some loving contact with unbelievers. This church had distorted that. They had formed walls and barriers between themselves and a lost and dying world. They had turned on its head the Lord's two great commands. They were on one hand not taking the gospel to all the nations, and on the other hand they were tolerating all kinds of worldliness in their midst. You see this sort of thing all the time in churches, unfortunately. People see it, the world sees it, if you're an unbeliever, you might have seen it. You might have seen hypocrisy. You might have seen duplicitousness. If you're a believer, unfortunately, you've had to probably endure the same. There are families who claim a desire for purity as a grounds for almost completely removing themselves from any contact with unbelievers. They do everything they can to remove themselves from any setting 
that is dominated or even sometimes in any way participated in by unbelievers. And then they make no effort to bring unbelievers into their own Christian lives and homes and churches and activities. You have people, they, they're no longer involved with public schools. They don't get involved with the rec leagues. They don't get involved. There are some Christians who, whose life goal is to buy a plot of land up on a mountain. Seriously. And that is all done in the name of separation. All done in the name of purity. All done in the name of what they believe is faithfulness to the Lord. Well, Paul's clear to separate yourself from unbelievers in this way is a misinterpretation of what God's called you to be. That's, that's a form of judgment. He says in verse 12, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Look, you might, have, you might be here as an unbeliever today and you might have heard the church say all kinds of things against immorality and against greed and all that other stuff and, and, and may think that we're just uh, here to cast stones. Look, we're here... Because we ourselves were once wrapped up and trapped in that kind of darkness. And we're here to say that God has freed us. And those who haven't been freed from that are still enslaved to it. Our message is a message of light. It's a message of freedom. It's a message of truth. It's a message that the power of the gospel can free you from that. And you might have seen someone proclaiming the name of Christ who's still entrapped in that, but that's not the gospel. And that's not the church. And that's not God's will. And that's not anything God's ever called for. We're not here to judge outsiders, Paul says. We're here to plead with them to find the light. Your responsibility, if you're a believer, is to love sinners. To seek and to save the lost, to go out into the highways and byways. Now, while it's not our place to judge outsiders, Paul's telling them it's very much our place to judge insiders. That's what he says in verse 12. What have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes. In fact, verse 13 defines that. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person. That is a command. Purge the evil person from among you. So after explaining to them what he did not mean, he clarifies to them what he had actually taught them, that they were not to associate with any so-called brother who was walking in sin. They were not to keep company with anyone who, as a Christian in name only, did not have a life to back it up. And Paul gives a sort of representative list of exactly what he's talking about. In fact, he had given the same list in verse 10 that you find in verse 11 with minor changes, making clear that in, uh, in, in this, within this context, the exact same sin in two different people is treated completely differently. That is to say, someone who's living in a life of sexual immorality, whether it's, whether it's uh, 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 pornography or whether it's fornication or whether it's adultery or whether it's homosexuality, the person living in that sin who doesn't profess Christ is treated completely differently 
from the person who does name in the name of Christ and still holds on to that kind of sin. The greedy person, the malicious person, the corrupt person. The key difference is what do they say with their lips? Do they profess to be a Christian? Paul mentions all kinds of sins. He mentions sexual immorality, the word porno, a pornos, excuse me, from which we get pornography, simply all kinds of sexual activity outside God's declared boundaries of marriage. Greedy, which is basically a word for wanting more, constant concern for more. It's in Proverbs, in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's always in reference to unlawful gain. Proverbs has a lot to say about honest gaining of possessions, but this word is never used in those Proverbs. It's always used in the pursuit of possessions that set aside the rights of others, that always use deception and coercion and manipulation, the taking advantage of others for personal gain. Sometimes churches tolerate people just like that in their midst. Idolaters. These people were professing believers, so Paul's probably not talking about them literally going and bowing down to some wooden statue. Probably, especially once you read 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's probably talking about their association with temple ceremonies still in their pagan culture. They would go, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and they would participate in some sort of meal, some sort of festival, whether it might be a wedding or whether it might be a funeral, whether it might be some other thing, they would go... And they would still proclaim that they themselves had not actually worshipped the idol who was there. I guess it's kind of like the guy that goes and hangs out in bars but says he doesn't get drunk. Paul says, look, even though you're not technically bowing down to the idol, there's an inherent endorsement of their activities by your participation in it. You're an idolater. You're an idolater. A reviler. That's the next word he uses, basically referring to someone with insulting speech. And really under this, you could incorporate all of the corrupt communication that's spoken about in places like 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about malicious slanderers, gossips, people who are constantly attacking one another's reputation and denigrating them. Churches tolerate this all the time. And the world sees it. And the world knows it, and the world sees a reflection of the same kind of discord and animosity that itself deals with all the time. A drunkard is Paul's next term. Someone who allows their mind to be affected by alcohol. That's what a drunkard is. They give over the control of their mind to a foreign substance. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs. And then Paul adds to that swindlers, literally a snatcher, someone who not just deceitfully swindles somebody, but violently seizes things from them. Same word, by the way, that's used for the rapture, the snatching away of the church. And Paul's already mentioned, even back in verse, what was it, verse 8, he mentions things like malice and evil. I mean, just... This is not just, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just representative. Same list in verse 10 for unbelievers, but at the end of verse 11, if it's a professed believer acting in this way, you are not even to eat with such a person. 
In other words, Paul's not simply calling for the formal removal of this person from the official church role. That's the way some people may deal with church discipline. They have some midweek meeting and they have some roll call and they'll remove a couple people from the role, but they still continue to come or they're welcome to come to the church. No, this is social. This is interpersonal. The phrase not even eat speaks about casual fellowship, casual interaction that a person would have with this individual. Second Thessalonians says you don't regard them as an enemy. They're not an enemy. We're, we're, in the, we're in the business of reconciling them to God. You don't regard them as an enemy, but you warn them as a brother. In other words, you're still engaging them. You're still talking to them as opportunity arises. You're still admonishing them. You're still warning them. But what you're not doing is carrying on casual social interaction, fellowship as if nothing's wrong. You're turning every encounter into a redemptive encounter. A warning, as he says. So in terms of their public involvement with the church... Paul quotes there at the end of verse 13 this phrase that's repeated a number of times in the book of Deuteronomy about how Israel itself was to deal with habitual sin in their own midst. Paul quotes it, Purge the evil person from among you. God's plan hasn't changed. His people need to be pure. If they're going to fulfill the mission that He's given them, if they're going to accomplish the purpose for which He's left us on this earth, if they're going to be the kind of community and the kind of conduit of His message, whether it was Israel who was commanded to be a blessing to all the nations, or whether it's the church who's commanded to go out and to make disciples of all men, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen by the obedient purging from time to time of those elements that would bring a corrupting influence to the testimony of the church. When the church fails to deal with sin that the world knows is wrong, the church has become ineffective. Worse, it's become disobedient. Disobedient to the Lord. This is God's design for the church. You want to know? You want to really know why younger generations aren't coming to the church? You want to know why the roles of churches all over our nation are shrinking? You want to know why churches aren't having the influence in culture and society like they should? It's because the, the world looks at the church and they see a reflection of itself. They look inside your doors and they see people with the same corrupt speech, the same malicious hearts, the same self-centered, self-absorbed lives. What do they need to see? They need to see lights shining in the darkness. They need to see city set on a hill. They need to see the purity of a professioning of faith in Christ. And they need to see the love of Christ reaching out to them, drawing them into your dinner table, drawing them into your family life, Drawing them in. Because that's what your Lord commanded. That's how He wants you to shine. Let's stand together. And uh, we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are...
struck by all those times when we, disobedient to you, have tolerated sin, first of all, in our own hearts, knowing that it is the purity of our life that is shining before the world, it must be the purity that we guard, whether it be in our own hearts, in our own lives, or in this congregation. Lord, where we have failed, we ask you to forgive. We ask you to cleanse. Lord, we also are struck with a burden if we have failed to love, if we have broken off contact with the world and disobedient to your command, no longer taking the gospel to them. Our lives are not about ourselves, O Lord. It is about your glory. It's about the gospel. So give us those eager hearts, those active feet and hands taking the gospel to the world. Open up our hearts that we might open up our lives and our homes so that up close and personal, people can examine and see the reality, the sincerity of our profession, the work that you've done in changing our hearts. Lord, we love you. We long to be obedient to you. We want to be everything we can be, everything we've called to be. We've been called to be to, to glorify your name. It'll only happen as your spirit works through us through the sanctifying power of your word, which we pray for. In Christ's name, amen.